This is the poetry of the prophet. It's the poetry of Advent. Isaiah is giving us new language, new language to talk to one another and new language to talk to God. This is language that keeps us faithful in our anger and everything that we see that is not as it should be. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. You know, I have a real hatred of interstates. Right? I don't like the big through highways. The movie Cars was the... For all the children's movies that I've ever seen, that one has been the, the quickest to my heart. I can get right behind Lightning McQueen and his life lessons learned and the recovery of the old Route 66 and everything that's forgotten. I just hate the downtowns we miss. I hate the stuff that happens to small towns when the interstate goes by several miles away instead of right through town. I hate it. It drives me crazy. I hate driving down the Bluegrass Parkway in Kentucky, and you can see the blast holes from the dynamite all the way down what used to be there. And you just feel like you're driving through something that was torn up unnecessarily. I hate driving from Sipapu, New Mexico to Taos, New Mexico, and seeing all the things that have been torn up so we could have a road through there instead of, I don't know what, just we could all walk or ride on donkeys or something. I have a hatred of interstates until... I need to get somewhere, (laughs) right? Until you need to get to Dallas in less than three hours. Until you need to make it to Arkansas. Until you need to drive to San Diego. And you got to get there today. And then you're really glad that there's an interstate. You can set the cruise on 80. And adios, I'll be back tomorrow. So I-27 just feels like a betrayal until you got to get to Amarillo and back in a hurry. You got to get somewhere fast. The situation is urgent. In Isaiah's poetry, we land in chapter 40 today, following a long pause. Depending on which scholarship you follow, 150, 160 years, or even if it wasn't much time, there's a huge pause in the story. There's a big pause, a long pause in the poetry. And chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah are these just incessant calls to repent, to turn around and to turn back towards God. And there are incessant failures on behalf of our ancestors, the people of God, to return to God. So that's what all those first 39 chapters chronicle over and over again, all the failures to turn. So the situation is urgent. And so these first words that Allison read for us in chapter 40, it's easy to forget what home is like when you've been living in exile for a long time. So Isaiah, he tunes in and he hears, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Right? It's this imagery of the rough places being leveled out and where there were mesquite trees in the way, we've moved them. There's the shortest, fastest possible avenue for somebody to come visit. Now highways in the ancient Near East were built, really the largest reason they were built is so that the victorious kings could go around and parade and say, hey, guess what? We won. And so the messengers would go around and the kings would go around and they'd build these new highways. And they're like, oh, there's a new highway being built so King so-and-so can come through and we can all celebrate that King so-and-so and his gods have taken over this territory. And so that's what they would do. They would build these trade highways and they would come through and have these big parades shouting out, we won, we won, we won. 
So the prophet and the people of God are asked here to build a highway to prepare for this grand announcement, God is victorious. We're sort of making a highway in our hearts for God to drive, to arrive, to land. It's like a runway where God can get here in a hurry and everything's cleared out of the way and all the brush is gone and the beacons are lit up and we've made it just perfect timing. Hey, this is where you come, God. We know we're ready for you and we want everything cleared out of the way so you can make your appearance, so we can join you in your victory parade. God is victorious. And the glory of the Lord, chapter 40, verse 5, shall be revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This imagery that everyone's going to see God's arrival. It will be evident to us. What would it look like in the season of Advent this year to build a highway in whatever wilderness we are experiencing for the arrival of God? What brush would need clearing from our hearts and minds in order for God to visit us? In Isaiah chapter 1, part of the indictment of God's people is that their hearts and their minds were sick. Their head was sick and the whole heart was faint. There was no soundness, God said, from the top of the head to the soles of their feet. They were just out of joint. The faith, the endurance, the will to persevere, the head, the heart, all out of whack. Healing was really needed, sorely needed. The people of God forgot what home was like. They forgot what God was like. All they knew were the Babylonian versions of gods, and they were just sort of chasing after whatever was offered to them, the, their version of the life and their version of gods, their version of happiness, their version of success. Their minds and their hearts and their imaginations were shaped by Babylon, not by God. They were really in hell, and they didn't even know it. They were living in a world that was distant from God. They had pushed God out of their lives. They weren't welcoming God back in. They had created a hell of their own making, and they didn't even know it. The situation was urgent, and a rescue was in order. This is where we celebrate together as we gather for worship that it is in God's nature to rescue us. That anytime we see a dire situation in the history of our people, or we see a dire situation in our current history, we rejoice to remember that it has always been God's nature to not abandon us, to rescue us, to find us in our time of trial and bring us salvation. Now, the book of Isaiah has a parallel call narrative right here in chapter 40. We, we remember, it's familiar to us, and we sing the song, Here I Am, Lord, of Isaiah chapter 6, of the prophet's call to go to a people. And remember, he didn't feel worthy. He had this big objection. God said, hey, I want you to go. And he said, well, not me. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I, you got the wrong guy, as usually happens when God calls us to do something, right? Isaiah said, no, 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 not me. And he objected. And so God brings this cleansing and healing experience, and he says, no, Isaiah, you're the man for the job, and I've healed you, and I've made you ready, and it's your turn. And so, in chapter 40, God is calling his people again. And it's not just the prophet, but it's all of God's people. There's a call to Zion and to Jerusalem, and we would insert here as Christians, we would say that's a call to the church. It's a call to the church to be called, to go out and be heralds of good news. And so that's all of us, and we're all receiving a call in this poetry, in this story, 
And I think our objection is always, in some form or fashion, it's always going to sound something like Isaiah's. Oh, not me, Lord. No, you don't know where I've been. See, I was a mess over here, and I'm just kind of getting back on my feet, or I don't even know where I am, or I'm struggling to believe because of these circumstances and what's going on. I don't think I'm the right guy, the right gal for the job. God's call was to the prophet and to the people of God to prepare and to shout. Verse 6, a voice said, shout or cry out. And I, I don't know if y'all grew up in a shouting household. Anybody grew up in a shouting house? And I'm, I'm not talking about, when I'm not trying to celebrate like any kind of verbal ab- abuse or anything like that. But I grew up in a, like a very subdued emotional house. So we did not yell. We did not flare our emotions. That was a sign that things were out of whack. We just did not do that. So we suppressed all the times, even that we would need to shout. We just, nope. Nope, say it plainly. If you can't say it in quiet, calm, plain English, don't say it. Go say it to somebody else. I'm sure you've got an uncle or an aunt that would like to hear you shout, but you don't shout here. So now that was never, you know, explicit, but that's just what we all felt. So we didn't shout. And if we did, you know, we created all kinds of chaos. But there are things worth shouting about, right? God is trying to tell the people, sometimes you got to shout. you got to get up on a mountain and you got to say something because people are asleep and we've forgotten and you need somebody to remind you that there's hope. So our objection, just like the prophets, is we hear this, we're like, okay, all flesh will see the glory of God. But then what do we immediately say? No, no. I'm not going to take my time and my heart energy and my space and my life to go out and rank all my ho- set all my hope on all flesh seeing and beholding God. Because guess what we know? All flesh objects the prophet and all flesh object we, all flesh is like grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. People aren't going to listen. No one's going to care. All flesh are like grass. I mean, we, we're, just, we're just here today. We're gone tomorrow. Nobody's going to listen. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to hear the Word of God. Nobody's willing to change. Nothing's going to be different. It's just going to be like this tomorrow, just like it was yesterday. And we object, and we object, and we object. We call baloney. All flesh is not going to see the glory of God. All flesh is like grass. And we say it over and over again. God's word is wasted. No one listens. Death comes too soon. What's the point? What is an objection that you could add today to this promise that all flesh will see the glory of God? We all have our objections that we're holding on to. Let's go ahead and say them. Let's speak them here in this dialogue where God is calling us. And so then there's a voice in the poetry, in the story, in the chronicling of this event. There's a voice that says, okay, yeah, all flesh are like grass. In verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but. You know how important this conjunction can be, but or however. This is God's great however of the season of Advent. Yeah, all flesh is like grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And it comes through just quickly and sharply like a knife, and it wakes us up. Yes, but Advent is the anticipation of God's great however. And in exile and wilderness, we We've been looking for comfort, and we don't find any. Right? We're looking for home, and we can't remember what it looks like. 
And we, we really feel and understand the language of Lamentations, which comes from a similar time, where, right? When Jerusalem has been destroyed, their holy city, their wonderful city with its temple and everything that was in it is destroyed. And the writer of Lamentations and Jeremiah is there, and he's just, he's just trying to capture it with words. And here's what he says. He says, Jerusalem weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. It's just like the whole city, the whole people is crying. There's tears all over her face. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. It's this image that we have companions and we have people that are interested in us. We don't have anybody to comfort us. No one's going to comfort us. No one's really going to be there when we need somebody. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So how strong and how fascinating and how captivating is the language, comfort ye. Comfort, oh comfort my people. What word do we need to hear more when we're standing there looking at the ruins than comfort, comfort my people. This is the poetry of the prophet. It's the poetry of Advent. Isaiah is giving us new language, new language to talk to one another and new language to talk to God. This is language that keeps us faithful in our anger and everything that we see that is not as it should be. And we become witnesses who demonstrate and we practice faith in the midst of frailty. Right? Our children grow up and they watch us in difficult and painful and hellish circumstances and they watch, they watch our faith maintain and keep up the good fight in the midst of a really hard time. The call here is to the church. When you see this bit in verse 9, in verse, well, really verse 9, it comes a couple of times, and go up on a high mountain, right? Get ye up on a high mountain. And speaking to Jerusalem is speaking to Zion. And sometimes you read these in the prophets and you go, okay, well, that's for, that's for people back then. Or that's for Jewish people. We don't even know anything about Zion. What does Zion mean or Jerusalem? That doesn't mean anything to us today here in Texas. But if you can, in your prayer and in your understanding, if you can just insert the word church when you see that in this context, O Zion, O Jerusalem, it's O church, right? it's the people of God. Right, the people of God used to be centered, yeah, and their whole worshiping center was in Jerusalem. But it doesn't look like that anymore. So, oh, church, it's us. We're the heralds. We're the bearers of good news. We're the ones that are supposed to populate the highways and remind people that God is victorious. And there's a new reign that's coming. So, what is so comforting about God in the midst of exile? I mean, we're always in some form in or out of exile. And all of our life, in fact, here on earth, in this body, as we live in a fallen world, or we might say enemy-occupied territory, all of life is lived in exile. We, we have not yet arrived at the place that we were created to live. We're always longing for home from the time that we're little babies until the time that we depart this body. We're longing for a home that we haven't yet seen. So what's so comforting about God while we're living in exile? I mean, the Babylonian oppression is the most real thing to us. We wake up every day and we go, yep, welcome to another day of Babylonian-occupied territory. We sing their songs. They won't let us sing our songs. They make fun of us. They're going on about their business, and we don't even remember where we've come from. What is the point? Enemies surround us. And 
Not to mention even just the things that are of our own fault or the oppression that we experience because of things like that or unfaithfulness, but what about just the good old-fashioned awful stuff that happens in life because we live in a fallen world? When life is taken away too soon, death itself, the last enemy, we face it and we wonder where is the hope or where is the comfort? What is God going to bring us? What could possibly be different as we live in exile? Here are the objections that I would have. Here are the objections that the people of God had. Hey, you tell us to stand up and to shout and to see and to behold our God. But guess where we like to behold our God and where we're trained to behold our God? It's in the temple. And guess what happened to the temple? The Babylonians tore it down. We have nowhere to go to see God. So why are you just, you're just teasing us. You want us to see God and we can't see God. There's no more temple. There's no peace. We're just, all we know is war and destruction. And there's no home. We don't live anything that feels like home, and we can't even remember how to recover it because we've lost our blueprints. We don't remember what it was like. And here we are, generation after generation after generation. And even if we wanted to go home, we don't know what we'd be looking for. There's no temple, there's no peace, and there's no home. We can add our own objections. What does it feel like to live in exile? To live in a place that feels like constantly enemy-occupied territory? And we wonder what good is the comfort of God? What is the good news that we're supposed to share? We've been commanded as the church to go and share the good news. What in the world are we going to say? And how can we really mean it when we're asking for comfort and asking for people to notice and pay attention and believe that there is a God that comes with might. We are comforted today as we look at the temple that was destroyed. What was the temple? The temple was the place where humanity met with God. It was the temple in the Jewish imagination. This is the place where heaven and earth were joined together. This is the place where it all made sense. And this is where we went to meet with God. And so when that place was destroyed, hope was lost. And you can begin to see the glimmers of hope in Isaiah's poetry. And as we we read this poetry during Advent, right, that that, that the, the stump of Jesse, right, the tree that was cut down, There will be a shoot that can grow from that. There's still hope. There's something that can be born that will be, uh, there's there's someone who will come and rescue us. And we begin to see this imagery of Jesus who's born as a baby, who will live and reign as this warrior shepherd, right? We We don't have the physical temple anymore. In its place, we have the Son of God. And out of love for us, God sends His only Son, who could become this new temple that because of the cross, we can meet with God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we join up. That's where heaven and earth meet now. And that's the place where we can journey when we're looking for this kind of hope. This is the God who comes as a baby, who will live and reign, though, as this warrior shepherd who brings us peace. Even when there's total chaos all around us, There's a peace that Jesus brings. This mighty God who is also merciful. Jesus comes on the scene as as a shepherd, the prophet 
tells us about. He's, he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them close to his chest. He will gently lead those that are with young. So this is a God who's powerful enough to take care of business and to rescue us. This is a God whose heart is tender enough to carry us and to hold us and to walk with us when we're in a vulnerable place. Or how about when we're caring for, for the vulnerable? He will gently lead those that are with young. So we find ourselves in these difficult and vulnerable places. And we're finding our way back home. And we remember that this is the Son of God who would later say, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I'm preparing your home. And if it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. Because I want you to be where I am. And that's going to be your truest home. And so we begin to picture in this season this vision of home, of a homecoming that we won't fully realize until the, all, the end of all things. And so how does that knowledge, that understanding that this Jesus who has come and become the new temple, the place where we meet with God, the God that brings us peace, and this God who prepares a place for us, how does that change how we live today? how we pray today, and how we share the news of God's arrival with those that need to hear it the most. To share the good news as we go from this place, we have to wrestle with the news. We have to wrestle with the gospel in order to share the gospel because we know how this works. No one believes us if we don't believe what we're saying. And we learn to believe this by trying it on for size. This gospel that we believe is real. We experience this. We dig roots down deep and we put our trust in this promise that the word of God might endure forever. And what if it does? What would that change? What news could we bring to our neighbors? But we have to wrestle with what's hard about it. The cliches that we've picked up along the way will fail us. And a call to look on the bright side will fail us. But Jesus Christ will never fail us. And this text, I think, invites us to explore the depths of the Word of God that endures forever. And to not give up on people. And to not give up on God. As we are reminded by Isaiah that God has not given up on us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.